0: version audio hi i'm natalie emmanuel from Ramsey in fast and furious to missandei in game of thrones i've loved playing roles of women whose resourcefulness intelligence and inner strength are pushed to the limit And I've been inspired by women who withstood the phenomenal pressures of being a wartime leader. The history books too often will have us believe that the stories of leaders in times of war are stories of men. Until now. Today, we reach back to the era of the French Revolution, George Washington and the Age of Enlightenment. We'll get to know a young, abused wife who seized power on horseback and sent troops to fight against the great powers of her age. During her long reign, she never lost a war and she wrote the blueprint for international relations in Eastern Europe for the next two centuries. I'm proud to present War Queens, a podcast about powerful women leaders throughout the centuries and around the world.
1: We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power.
0: We will continue to do everything possible to avoid an armed conflict. And the situation is a a grave one. We are driven by necessity to prepare to defend
1: what was just gained, our freedom and our very being.
0: Telling Her Story is the daughter-father history duo of Emily and John Jordan. Thank you, Natalie. I've really loved sharing these stories of amazing women who led their nations during times of combat. Yeah, me too. Since men have been the default when it comes to fighting wars, it's remarkable how many women did just as well, and sometimes better than the men. An English poet once wrote, quote, The female of the species is the deadliest by far. End quote. I mean, I don't know that they're the deadliest, but they certainly can be deadly enough to do the job when they have to.
1: And it's also so surprising how what they did, sometimes many centuries ago, comes back again and again.
0: Across these episodes of the War Queens podcast, we've seen some repeated patterns, haven't we? Like women who wore military clothing to inspire troops, women who used religion or royal blood to legitimize their claim to the throne, and women who bargained over marriage to keep other nations from invading them.
2: And today we're going to be talking about a woman whose military strategy was copied and replayed during a major war in this century.
0: I see you've got a collection of Russian nesting dolls on the table today, and that means we're going to be talking about Catherine the Great. The greatest
1: Russian empress who is not even Russian. She studied the ideals of French enlightenment during a time of war, revolution, and empires. And she did it after marrying one of the worst husbands in history. <laughs> Absolutely. But we're getting ahead of the story. So, Dad, do you want to start us off with the story of the empress formerly known as Princess Sophia?
2: Sure, Emily. I mean, we see some of these themes, I guess, over and over. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain who said that history doesn't really repeat itself, but it rhymes a lot. Mm. And (laughs) I I tend to think of history as kind of a rubber band that stretches out in one direction It may snap back. It may kind of go quietly in the other direction. But we see some of the things that Catherine the Great did, and we find echoes of them that went into the 20th century and even today. So uh, let's get started.
1: Yeah, tell us about her. She had several names, right?
2: Catherine started out as Princess Sophia of Anhalt-Zerbst. That's a place in eastern Germany called Pomerania. The Russians knew her as Yekaterina Alexeyevna Romanova, or you know, history knows her as Catherine the Great.
1: Good pronunciation, you've been practicing, I bet.
2: <laughs> been working on it with uh, my wife. So Catherine was alive during this transition from the age of kings to the birth of democracy. When Catherine was born, Louis Fourteenth and the other Bourbon kings were ruling France and King George II owned America. By the time she died, France had become a republic and George Washington was president of the United States. So that's Mm -hmm. the time period we're talking about. The strange thing about her is she is the most famous Russian empress in history and she didn't have an ounce of Russian blood in her.
1: She was a German, right?
2: Yeah, she was a German from from Prussia, uh, which was run by Frederick the Great at that time. She was brought to St. Petersburg, Russia, which was the capital, by Empress Elizabeth, who was holding a casting call for who would be wife of her nephew, Peter. Peter would one day succeed Elizabeth and he would become Emperor Peter Third. Catherine was pretty, she was smart, she was witty, and she impressed Empress Elizabeth, who gave her the rose on behalf of Peter. Or do you get the rose when you have to leave? How's that work?
1: <laughs> usually someone gives you the rose, but it's usually the bachelor.
2: Does that mean you win? Not quite. Okay. Anyway, she won, and her prize was she got to be the wife of the Grand Duke, Peter.
1: Was it everything she thought it would be?
2: Well, Catherine impressed Empress Elizabeth, but her husband Peter impressed nobody. Mm. He was an abusive husband. He grew up with a sadistic tutor when he was little. He was scarred by pox as a young kid, so he was kind of ugly. He had a lot of mental health problems. As a teenager, he grew up playing with toy soldiers and making his servants march around the palace like they were on the battlefield. He had no interest in marital relations with his wife, and it took nine years into his marriage before he seemed to be attracted to girls. At that point, he just ignored his wife, Catherine, who he treated like kind of a big sister and the butt of his jokes. And he took a mistress who cussed like a sailor and spit whenever she talked. So he was just not very good uh, husband material. But what's the main job of a princess or a queen when you're in a royal family?
1: Providing a male heir.
2: Got it. She had to do that. Catherine saw her position at Elizabeth's court beginning to slip. And because of that, she had to have a baby, so she produced one. It might have been with the butler. It might have been with Peter. We don't really know for sure. But she at least secured her position in in the palace. Mm -hmm. Well, unlike her husband, Peter, Catherine was really doing everything right. I think she was the straight-A student. She learned Russian. She studied philosophy. She studied government. And she gave up her Lutheran religion at the urging of Frederick the Great for Russian Orthodoxy, and that's how she got the name Catherine.
1: Yeah, she definitely had to take on the right persona uh, to in order to be a part of them.
2: Exactly. Well, as she grew up as the Grand Duchess, she made friends with the diplomatic corps, she made friends with the court ministers, she made friends with the senior Russian Orthodox clergy, and she made friends with the army. She was always giving out like freebies to officers to keep them on her good side.
1: And that's always good, Uh, winning over the people that you are going to be commanding is always helpful.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. So Elizabeth dies and Peter III ascends the throne. He proved to be one of the worst rulers ever to sit on the Romanov throne. He was a next-level asshat, basically. (laughs) He was worse than useless. In fact, useless would have been a step up for the Russian people. Well, here were the problems that her husband Peter had. First, he was a big-time fanboy of Frederick the Great. Now, Frederick the Great was the king of Prussia. He was a military leader, really, truly a, a great man in his own right. But Peter kind of fawned all over him. Peter loved everything German, and he insulted everything Russian, and he would get really drunk, and he'd just get crude at, at dinner parties. So he made the court's wig and stocking crowd uh, pretty mad.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I, I mean, you can't be in charge of a country that you're openly haranguing and, and making them mad.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, then he, he made the, the army mad, too. First, he fires his Russian bodyguard and replaced them with German cavalrymen. Then he ordered the army to change out of their baggy, comfy Russian uniforms and put on tight pants, tight stockings, powdered wigs, and all this stuff that's really uncomfortable and very un-Russian.
1: I knew we were going to talk about this, so I actually brought one of our old costume wigs, maybe an old George Washington yeah, I think costume. I think
2: I was like, that was from uh, Halloween-like five or six years ago. So. I want you to put this all on right. and
1: tell me how it makes you feel. All right. Do you feel more powerful?
2: <laughs> I actually feel kind of humiliated. So can I just put it down? You can put it all down. Right,
1: well. well, and and speaking of these like tight-fitting uniforms, I mean, we can all imagine that people in the Army wouldn't appreciate that when they're, you know, they're used to their baggy or clothes. And, and it made me think of, I work as a nurse and I wear scrubs. I don't think you could pay my coworkers and I any amount of money to go back to wearing like jeans or slacks to the workplace. like I don't think you could pay us.
2: Remember, though, Peter is the emperor, so what he says goes. Mm. And the army grumbled, but they went along with it. They were turning more Prussian than Russian, and none of them liked it. Well, worst of all, Emperor Peter got Russia out of a war it was winning against Frederick the Great at the time. It was in a war with uh, Austria and Russia siding against Prussia. And uh, Peter ended that. Just as the Russians had committed a lot of troops, they shed a lot of blood, they were about to beat Frederick the Great. And Peter says, "Okay, time out. We're getting out of the war. And I'm going to declare war instead on Denmark, (laughs) which nobody cared about. So, So Peter's getting the Russians out of a war that they're about to win and they really want to win and getting them into this war that nobody cares at all about. Well, 1762, he's, he's emperor now, uh, just turned emperor, and he decided to arrest Catherine on trumped-up charges so he could divorce her and marry his mistress. He, his, he
1: just stuck her in a convent, right?
2: Yeah, his plan was to put her in a convent, which is basically a prison for high-class women. Hmm. Think of it like a perpetual book club. Oh, no. Okay. So he took off with his mistress to a palace near St. Petersburg called Iranian Bomb, and he decided to hang out there for a weekend. He was about to go off to Denmark and fight, and that's when Catherine made her move. Remember, she was on good terms with everybody. Nobody liked Peter. So she was approached by some officers in the army who said that the army was ready to support her in a coup against her husband. So she went to the guards regiment barracks in St. Petersburg. There were three of them. And she showed up and, and told the men there, my husband is about to arrest me. I fear for my life. I fear for the life of my child, the next heir to the Russian throne. And I'm gonna throw myself at your mercy for protection. You know what they did? These big burly Russians fell all over themselves to crowd around her. They mobbed her, they knelt before her, they pledged their their loyalty to her, and it was a big it was a big cinematic moment. She knew how to play the, to the crowds. They brought out a cross and a priest and they all swore allegiance to her. Then she went to the next barracks and then the next barracks and rolled them up until she had basically the whole army around St. Petersburg. Somewhere around 10,000 men probably, 12,000. Wow. Uh, all supporting her. So she goes over to the Senate. She goes over to the, uh, the clergy at Kazan Cathedral, the, the, big, the main uh, Orthodox cathedral there. Everybody agrees to support her. So now she's got to get back at husband. She knows that he's an Iranian bomb, and he's probably heard about her coup back in the capital. So she's got to isolate him and capture him before he can get with the main body of the army that was about ready to go fight in Denmark. So she borrows a captain's jacket, a green, green military coat. She borrows a three-cornered hat, kind of like you know George Washington t- mm-hmm. style. And she borrowed a sword and rode with a small army toward Iranian bomb. And so she's dressed up on this horse looking like a military leader. And then she later said to someone, for a man's work, you've got to wear a man's outfit.
1: And we talk about that a lot throughout this book about women who aren't afraid to take on a male persona. And that's interesting because throughout history, we don't really see the opposite. We don't really see men taking on a feminine persona uh, for power and influence. So I think that's kind of an interesting, mostly female tactic.
2: Yeah, we, we see that a number of times with uh, Hatshepsut, we see it with uh, Catherine, we Ginga. see it with uh, we saw it with Margaret Thatcher on, on the tank. So uh, So basically, she's now closing the trap, and Peter is at his palace with his mistress, and he has no clue that he's been stalked and trapped and didn't even know it. Uh, it's kind. Of, it's kind of like uh, Julia Garner's character, Ruth, in Ozarks, when she goes up to the sheriff and says, "Wendy's playing chess and you're playing Candyland." <laughs> he had no idea. So. Uh, He tries to uh, get to a fort where uh, Peter thinks maybe they'll support him. Everybody said, Empress Elizabeth has declared you persona non grata. So he starts crying and he he like sobs in his mistress's arms. His mistress is going, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Um, He gets back to the palace. He sends all of his servants home, writes a letter to his wife apologizing for his bad behavior and says, I'll share the throne with you. And of course, her army's moving on this palace and he, she's ignoring him. So then he writes a second letter and says, OK, I'll just give up my throne. Is that all right? And she ignored that letter, too, and she had him arrested. Uh, a week later, uh, some officers of, uh, in the army strangled him. Probably without Catherine's orders, but they knew that he would be a threat to Catherine, so they had to get rid of him.
1: Well, she gets some points for being merciful and not necessarily killing him. Uh, you know, unless she did have a hand in that and did know about that.
2: But. Yeah, it's it's unclear. Um, she certainly was uh, tried to cover it up to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, The official word was that he died of a hemorrhoidal colic. Oh. (laughs) And and that that sort of became almost like the Soviets who have these, you know, this propaganda stuff. Um, That became kind of a catchphrase. And so Catherine was good friends with a lot of French philosophers. And she used to write to them and invite them to... Uh, St. Petersburg, and one of them wrote his friend Voltaire, I don't think I'll go to Russia because I'm prone to uh, hemorrhoids, and I understand that as a deadly condition in Russia. Oh, so gosh. Nobody really bought it. But Catherine, at this point, we're talking mid-1762, becomes the Empress of Russia, and let's talk for a moment about the kind of queen she was because her military career was a different side of her her civil government uh, ideals.
1: She was known to wake up really early and and be very hardworking, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. She'd get up at 6 a.m. every day. She'd let her dogs out to go potty. And she worked until lunchtime on her correspondence in sort of a baggy Russian-type dress. Just like you. Yeah, exactly. She uh, loved the ideals of the French Enlightenment. As she grew up as the Grand Duchess, she wrote in French to French philosophers like Voltaire and Diderot and D'Alembert. And she said about modernizing Russia. Uh, She gave a lot of orders. And, you know, we we see a lot of memoirs of her courtiers who talked about what her thought process was. There was one point in in some of our sources we read for the War Queens where she's talking to a private secretary uh, who remembered that he asked her about her ability to have this absolute power as the absolute, almost God on earth monarch of Russia. And she explained it to him this way. She said, it's not as easy as you think. In the first place, my orders would not be carried out unless they were the kind of orders which could be carried out. I take advice, I consult, and when I'm convinced in advance of general approval, I issue my orders and have the pleasure of observing what you call blind obedience, and that is the foundation of unlimited power.
1: So, the world that she's living in right now, let's talk a little bit about that. There's five kingdoms. There's Mm -hmm. Russian Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, with uh, greats such as Mother Teresa there.
2: Maria Teresa. Oh, she is a mother, but she's <laughs> yeah, not that Maria. Teresa. Maria Theresa of Austria runs the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, sure.
1: The Ottoman Empire and the Prussian Kingdom.
2: Right. And so the Ottomans are under a sultan named Mustafa, and they're kind of the big Islamic kingdom. You got the Prussian Kingdom under Frederick the Great, who is the Great. And uh, so you got all these, these four kingdoms, basically, Russia, Prussia— Austro-Hungaria, and Ottoman, and in between them, like the hub of a wheel, is... Poland. Poland. That's the buffer state that everybody had to watch to see who was going to try to gobble some of it up. Well, Poland at the time was in a political coma. Its king was dying. Its, uh, its parliament had a rule that said you could only pass laws if everybody agreed, and everybody meant 1,000 delegates. You're never going to find complete agreement. You can always at least bribe somebody to disagree with a piece of legislation. So there was really no national government. So two years into Catherine's reign, this is now 1764, she sends in 14,000 soldiers and put her former lover, a guy named Stanislaus Poniatowski, in charge and basically on the Polish throne. So now she's won a coup. And against her husband militarily, and she's won, uh, won the Polish throne for herself. So that technically gives her a 2-0 and record at this point. Although, to be fair, her enemies didn't fight back too much in those two wars.
1: Yeah, and in some ways she was kind of doing Poland a favor. They were a sitting duck there.
2: Yeah, although the Polish really didn't like it, as we'll see. Mm. But they didn't fight back then. And after our break, we'll talk about a guy who did fight back and get Catherine into her first ugly war.
0: By 1768, Catherine had made a name for herself as a war leader. But so far, her enemies had been small ones, her husband and a weak Polish kingdom. When we get back from the break, we'll see what happens when a real enemy with large armies and international allies challenges her.
1: So Catherine's established herself in Poland, but not everyone would like that, right?
2: Absolutely. And one guy who pushed back in a big way was a sultan named Mustafa. Isn't that a total sultan name? Yeah. He wasn't going to tolerate Russians in Poland And so six years into Catherine's rule, he declared war on her. I'd like to talk about that for a minute because the Russo-Turkish War is a really fascinating war. It's the war where Catherine cut her teeth and it showcased a modern approach to warfare and statecraft. First thing Catherine did was decide to manage the war from her capital at St. Petersburg. She used really modern methods for that. The first order of business, like any good student, is to hit the books. So she studied the records of a previous war Russia had with uh, the Ottomans back in the 1730s. And she and her council debated, what did we do right, what did we do wrong?
1: And that goes back to what we were talking about. Does history repeat itself? Are they gonna make the same mistakes? And and that kind of helps her calculate her judgment calls on the battlefield.
2: Exactly, Catherine was very cognizant of that. Catherine also studied the Ottoman army. That was a Sun Tzu kind of thing to do. The Ottoman army was massive, but it was kind of old, a little bit decrepit, and they hadn't fought a war in a long time, so it was a little bit weak. Catherine worked with her military staff at the War College in St. Petersburg to determine what the army needed to win a war. I mean, it needed soldiers and troops, but she had to figure out how many of each they needed and uh, she had to see whether she could deliver that. Now, in addition to figuring out how to provide for an army and build an army that would be big enough to defeat the Turks, she had to look at what other governments would do. Would, for instance, Maria Theresa join the Turks in the war against her? Would Frederick the Great intervene to keep Russia from becoming too powerful? What would London do or Copenhagen or Paris? She had to check out what each of these would do, and she consulted her diplomats.
1: So a big part of going to war is understanding what is your goal, what do you want from this? What were her political goals?
2: Well, her political goals were a balance, really, between war and diplomacy. She really wanted to have a good port on the Black Sea. Russia historically has looked for a good warm water port on the Black Sea, so it could trade with Southern Europe. Now, that was her political goal. She, of course, wanted to catch more Black Sea territory, maybe in what is now Ukraine. But remember, these were big goals. She didn't interfere with the military tactics. She just set the big uh, objectives and told the military leaders to carry them out. And that is something that modern military leaders do. The president sets the political objectives And it's up to the military to carry that out.
1: And that's what sets her apart from the war queens that we write about that come before her in our book, is um, kind of taking a step back and looking at a bigger picture here.
2: Right. And Catherine, managing an empire, a true modern empire, had to look at what was going on around her and figure out who was going to attack me while I was attacking uh, Mustafa. Well, Catherine did attack Mustafa. She sent two armies into what is now Ukraine and Romania. Catherine had to replace one general who was a little bit slow, but generally she let her military men do their jobs. Her armies drove down to the Black Sea and occupied the Crimean Peninsula, and she sent her navy which was in the Baltic Sea, around Europe. So they had to go past England and France and Spain, through the Mediterranean, say hi to the guys in Italy, hello to the Greeks, and then finally attack the Turkish fleet at a place called Chesme, And that put the Russians in control of the seas near Istanbul, which was the Ottoman capital. So now Catherine is not only capturing areas around the Black Sea, she's actually beginning to threaten the Ottoman Empire.
1: And she has a great success rate. They should be afraid. She
2: does. She keeps winning and winning. Uh, Prussia and Austria got nervous at this point because they needed the Ottoman Empire to be healthy in order to keep the Russians in check. So Frederick the Great decides, we got to end this war before Catherine gets too powerful. So I'm going to propose a solution. Let's let Mustafa keep his territory and Catherine can help herself to part of Poland as... Uh, her, her price for victory. So, Austria, Russia, and Catherine the Great cut this deal where Poland lost one-third of its population. Catherine got a big portion of what is now Bielorussia, Eastern Lithuania, some other stuff, and basically added 1.3 million new subjects to her empire. Frederick as his price for being the blessed peacemaker, got to have East Prussia, and Maria Theresa, a very pious woman, said, I really shouldn't leave my country out, although I think this is morally distasteful, but I'm going to take a chunk of Southern Poland for myself.
1: I'll have some anyway, even though it's wrong.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Catherine the Great later wrote to someone that Maria Theresa, who she nicknamed Lady Prayerful, always cries, but she always takes. (laughs) <laughs> well, Sultan Mustafa dies, his brother Abdul Hamid succeeds him, and Abdul Hamid thinks my big brother's war is pretty stupid. So he agreed to give Catherine three Black Sea ports and make the Crimean Peninsula an independent Russian protectorate. So, Emily, you keep in score?
1: Um, That would be about 3-0. Three, three yeah,
2: she's now 3-0. and oh. She's racking up some good territory, getting momentum. So here's the next challenger, her dead husband. Oh. Yeah. Now, war is expensive, and the Turkish War was really expensive. It cost her about two-thirds of her country's income. So she had to raise taxes. She had to draft a lot of peasants for the war effort. Now, peasants, they don't have a good life to begin with. But when you raise their taxes again and tell them they've got to go down and fight Turks— they weren't very happy with that. So a revolt sprang up south of Moscow under a guy claiming to be Emperor Peter III, Catherine's dead husband. Now, this
1: guy couldn't even write, right? <laughs> no, he was, he was
2: illiterate. He, he was actually a peasant named Yemelian Pugachev. And uh, he was basically just a thug who said, he was kind of delusional. He said, I'm Peter the III. Well, Catherine didn't take him seriously at first because she was still winding down the Turkish war. But the peasant, Pugachev, sacked a fortress on the Volga River with an army of 3,000 peasants and Cossacks. They basically stormed the place, slaughtered all the soldiers, and so Catherine said, well, we need to send more soldiers. So she sent another small detachment, and Pugachev's army overwhelmed them and cut their heads off and left them hanging from trees and all that kind of stuff. Well, his army grew with his successes to about 15,000, and they began marching north up the Volga River to the city of Kazan, which is an important city to Russians. It's, it's a little north of Kazakhstan. And he went along slaughtering the landowners, killing the men, raping the women, sending wives and daughters off to be Married off to his his peasants,
1: and they're getting pretty close to Moscow now. Yeah,
2: yeah, they're they're well by Russian standards <laughs> they are. Yeah. Kazan's about I think 600 miles from Moscow, but bear in mind he'd already moved like 400 miles from where he started. So, the Moscovites are getting pretty panicky. Well, Catherine finally sends in a larger army that defeated uh, Pugachev's troops they couldn't capture Pugachev. So like two or three times he goes and hides off into the woods and comes back with these new peasant armies.
1: Does anyone ever come in and say, We know you're not Peter?
2: You uh, think? Everybody knew he wasn't. They knew he was crazy, <laughs> but it was it's like like Kanye. Nobody wanted to tell him no. So <laughs> it's yeah now, actually. Yeah, sorry. Um so anyway, uh Catherine has to send another general because her her best general who's fighting Pugachev dies. And the best replacement she had was this guy who hated the idea of working for a woman who was ruling the country. He's a general named Pyotr Panin. And Catherine had put him under her secret police surveillance because he was that much of an outspoken critic. But he was her best general. So what's Catherine going to do?
1: She has to trust him.
2: Yeah. She she wrote her top minister, Before the whole world, frightened of Pugachev, I commend and elevate above all mortals in the empire a prime big mouth who insults me personally. But, you know, sometimes the needs of empire are going to outweigh her personal feelings. She used to say that the time is not mine, but it belongs to the empire. Hmm. So she appoints the prime big mouth who insults her as her general in the South. She tells him, go out, conquer. You can pardon any rebels you want, the low-level ones. You maybe execute a few of them. You're not allowed to use torture. Uh, She was still kind of a product of the Enlightenment. And if you're going to execute people, you can't make it too nasty and bloody. So just don't do that. Well, they finally capture Pugachev in 1774 after a few more battles. They send him to Moscow. They had him executed by quartering.
1: They had him go live with some peasant fish? They did
2: not quarter him in somebody's house. Quartering back in medieval times was basically you chop their arms and legs off. And the sentence for him was, we got to chop the arms and legs off before we chop his head off.
1: I prefer having, personally.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like in, in uh, the movie Walk Hard. No, he's not going to be halved. He's going to be quartered. And everybody knew Catherine wasn't going to like that. So they paid off the executioner to bungle the execution and chop his head off first. And then they chopped his hands and feet off afterwards.
1: All right, so now Catherine's 4-0.
2: She's 4-0. Probably her only uh, disappointment is that the crowd didn't get to watch Pugachev, you know, flail his arms with blood everywhere. Because back then in Moscow, quality entertainment was hard to come by. Still is. And after the break, we'll talk about uh, the next war over one of history's greatest real estate developments.
0: So if you're keeping score, Catherine's record is now 4-0. After the break, John will get into a war over history's greatest real estate development deal, one that inspired a war fought in the 21st century.
1: So, Dad, take us into our next chapter of
2: Catherine's Wars. So, the 4-0 Empress, Catherine the Great, has just conquered the Crimean and a section of what is now southern Ukraine. She's got to decide what to do with it. Over Catherine's lifetime, she had about 12 lovers that she acknowledged. Some were political, some were purely personal, some were romantic relationships. But one of those lovers was also her best minister, a guy named Grigory Potemkin. Potemkin was handsome. He was kind of a rogue, very smart, very energetic, a good politician. So Catherine decided to make Prince Potemkin her top man in southern Russia, and he launched one of history's greatest real estate developments. Prince Potemkin built a major port city called Kherson, which is in southern Ukraine. Now it's a name that's in the news a lot. And he imported builders and shipyard workers and engineers and farmers to build out the area. He eventually persuaded Catherine to annex the Crimean. This was in 1783, so it's about the time the American Revolution is being negotiated for its uh, the treaty that ended it, uh, ended the war. Now, Catherine figured Great Britain, still stuck in America, probably wouldn't do anything. So, she agreed to annex the Crimean. Then, she had Potemkin build out the Crimean. Its population doubled as he built ports like Sevastopol, and he built another port called Odessa. Again, you know, these are major places in the Black Sea area. Potemkin also built up a navy, giving Russia the world's fourth most powerful fleet after Britain, Spain, and France. So Catherine decided to take a tour of her new lands to underscore that this was Russian territory. She took a bunch of coaches and boats down to the Crimean area. Uh, one Austrian uh, writer called it Cleopatra's fleet. And she met with a Polish king. Uh,
1: it's a former lover.
2: Yeah, her, a former lover. Yeah, yeah uh, Poniatowski. Mm. So she meets him, and that was kind of awkward. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, he didn't want to be king. He actually liked Catherine. and. And so he basically said, well, maybe we should go see each other some more. You wanna do lunch sometime? And she said, "Uh, I'll have my people get back with you and left in in rather embarrassing haste. Uh, She also had spent some time in the South with the new Austrian emperor, Joseph. And uh, they christened a boat together. They kind of talked about what their interests were for the two countries in this area around the Black Sea. She got to check out her navy, which was a two-day sail from Istanbul. So basically, she's now underscoring the threat that she can pose to the Ottoman Empire. Well, Sultan Abdul Hamid, he's the guy who replaced Mustafa. He knew what was coming. He saw Catherine flexing on him. And he did not really want to go into a war against Russia again. Because remember, the Ottomans had been pwned by the Russian soldiers back in 1772. But he felt like he was backed in a corner. So he did what people do when they're backed into a corner. He launched a war. Or at least he declared one. In the year 1787, when the United States was drafting its constitution, the Sultan sent Catherine an ultimatum. You get out of Crimea or you and me are going to war. Well, Catherine, of course, wasn't going to do that. But Catherine struck first this time. She sent Prince Potemkin and her top general, an up-and-comer named Alexander Suvorov, to capture the big Turkish force of Ochakov on the Dnieper River. Now, with this partnership she set up, Potemkin was going to provide the big political strategy. He was going to say what, our, what the objectives were of the Empress. Suvorov would be kind of like their general George Patton, and he would actually command the fighting.
1: Yeah, who you know plenty about in your book.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like George Patton, um, Suvorov was a bit eccentric. Uh, he trained very hard, but uh, he he was very effective at what he did. And an interesting fact point here: uh, you know who commanded Suvorov's navy in these uh, in these engagements? I don't remember. Yeah, John Paul Jones the Mm. head of the American Navy. He was like one of America's first great naval heroes, but he was out of work after the revolution. So he went to work for Savorov and Catherine, and you know, he was fighting there. Well, Potemkin at this point, writes back to Catherine and says, Empress, I think we need to evacuate the Crimean because then I don't have to station as many troops and we can fight more effectively other places.
1: But Catherine is 4-0 at this point. Does she really want to do that?
2: Yeah, she's she's 4-0 and she doesn't want to because partly this is a political thing to her. She did not interfere with military tactics, but she looked at it and said, I just occupied the Crimean. I can't make it look like the Sultan Abdul Hamid sends me a threat and I immediately pull back out. That would make me look weak. So she says, hang in there, you hold it. And pretty soon, Potemkin and Savarov start racking up these wins. And so it looks like Catherine is now well on her way to extending her record to a 5-0 streak. Almost. She has this interference from the north. Uh, The kingdom of Sweden was a big player during the time of Peter the Great. And Sweden at this time was led by a first cousin of Catherine's named Gustavus III,
1: he wanted to recapture part of Finland, correct? The, the part that Peter the Great had captured in the early 1700s.
2: Exactly. Uh, he was looking for some big win, something big and splashy, and a way to put, uh, you know, put the mighty Catherine in her place. Gustavus sent Catherine an ultimatum. He said, get out of Finland, give Turkey back all its land, and let me mediate the end to your war with Turkey. Catherine thought that was bizarre. She shook her head and wrote to one of her ministers, What have I done that God should choose to chastise me with such a feeble instrument as the king of Sweden? (laughs) But, you know, she didn't have any choice. He's going to declare war, so she had to fight to the north in Sweden or against Sweden while she was still fighting to the south against the Ottoman Empire. Well, time wasn't really on Augustus's side. Uh, the Swedish leaders didn't like this new war, and Catherine sent bribes to the Danes to threaten to attack Sweden from the south. So after a few battles, Gustavus has to call a truce, and they agreed to make a peace where basically nobody would give up any land.
1: That's not really a, a decisive victory, but I think she definitely made a smart move in saying, all right, if you're going to bother me with these threats, I'll bother you with some of my own.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. So. You know they end this war with Sweden. So what's her record now? I mean, do you call do you call that a win for Catherine or a tie?
1: I'd call it a tie. I'd yeah, say. I think
2: yeah. I think in fairness it's a tie. So now she's got a four zero and one record: four wins, no losses, one tie. Uh, she, but she racks up another win against Turkey in 1792. So the Sultan died again, that Abdul Hamid guy, and his successor. Like the previous time, thought this Turkish war with Russia is a really bad idea. So, Turkey agreed to accept the idea that Russia would own the Crimean going forward. And like the last time, they had to give Russia more land in what is now Ukraine. So, if we're Continu- keeping score, yeah. we're keeping score now.
1: Yeah, continues the winning streak. Yeah. Um, 501.
2: Oh, five, oh, one right. Mm-hmm. So, she's on a tear. But she has to think about what's going on in Poland. Okay. 1792. This is the time when the French Enlightenment has now turned into revolution. There was a revolution in America. There was a revolution in France. And a guy named Thaddeus Kosciuszko, uh, who, was a, who fought with George Washington in America, started spreading these revolutionary ideas in Poland and said, basically, look, we're getting pushed around by the Russians. We should be free, rights of men, ideals, democracy, all this stuff that Catherine pretended to like, or at least maybe thought she liked back when she was a young woman, but she didn't love it when the ideals of the French Revolution threatened her empire and threatened kings and queens that you know she was one of them. So the year that She beat Turkey, the French beheaded King Louis XVI and his wife, Marie Antoinette. And so France is led by, as Catherine put it in a letter, a crowd of lawyers, fools masquerading as philosophers, rascals, young prigs destitute of common sense, puppets of a few bandits who do not even deserve the title of illustrious criminals.
1: I'm assuming she's no longer a fan of Voltaire and Diderot anymore. Yeah,
2: I mean, so this is a long way from the woman who uh, fawned over those French philosophes. So she decides she's got to put Poland's bad attitude down once and for all. First thing, though, she's got to think about what? If she's going to invade Poland, who else has she got to think about?
1: Uh, Prussia and Austria. They That would leave her open to attack.
2: Exactly. She's got to figure out how to keep them busy, but with revolutionary France fomenting to their West, she thought she had the perfect distraction. So she told her secretary, "'I am breaking my head to push the courts of Vienna and Berlin to involve themselves in the affairs of France. I have much unfinished business, and it's necessary for them to be kept busy and out of my way.'" Well, she stoked up enough fear through her diplomats of, the possibility of revolutionary French running around guillotining people in Prussia and Austria, that they really didn't do a whole lot when she sent 65,000 soldiers in to attack Poland. Prussia is led by Frederick the Great's successor, Frederick Wilhelm, and he was treaty-bound to defend Poland if Russia invaded. But he didn't want to do anything. He found a loophole in the treaty and said, okay, I'm not going to come to Poland's aid. So that left the only guy in front of her as Poland's King Stanislaus. You remember him?
1: Yeah, it's an ex boyfriend of hers.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was her boy toy from the 1760s. And he basically rolled over because he knew Russia was going to win. So now she's up to what? 601. 601, oh, that's right. Uh, she's got an almost spotless record. So, Catherine and Frederick Wilhelm decided, we got to do something more about Poland. They made a secret treaty to bite off more pieces of land. Catherine got 100,000 square miles of Polish territory and three million Polish subjects. So, now she's basically got Western Ukraine, Bielorussia, Lithuania, chopping that stuff up.
1: I feel terrible for Poland (laughs) this whole time just getting bulldozed.
2: Well, so the Poles rise up again under Thaddeus Kosciuszko, uh, the guy who had fought with George Washington. And with this second uprising, Catherine sends in Suvorov. Uh, Suvorov smashes the rebels. He captures Warsaw. He captures Kosciuszko and sends him down to a Russian prison to live out his days. And Catherine decides... We got to deal with these Poles once and for all. They're just too much of a problem. They think that they can have a democracy, yada, yada. So she splits up what they call the third partition of Poland with Austria and uh, Prussia. So Catherine gets the rest of Ukraine. She gets the rest of Lithuania and the rest of Belorussia. Austria gets the Southern part of Poland and Prussia gets Warsaw and Western Poland. So Poland now ceases to exist and would not reappear as a country until after the First World War.
1: So if, her record is seven zero
2: one. If we're keeping count exactly, and she was keeping count. In 1796, Catherine was going to launch another military expedition to go down into Persia, modern-day Iran, but uh, that year she died of a stroke, mm. and uh, that was that was her story. That. The other story about how she died that's completely made up.
1: That's a pretty abrupt, but at least she left on a high note on a good record.
2: She did. She was working till the end of her days. She would still get up at six in the morning, still let the doggies out. She loved coffee. She would drink uh, four or five cups from pots that were each made of one pound of coffee beans ground up. Oh, wow. She liked her coffee strong. Uh, but her legacy included a heavy dose of the push and calculate that your enemies will not push back. You know, she did that with the Turks. She flexed on them. She backed them into war and made sure it was a war she could win. So she was brilliant in the way she played that. In fact, so brilliant that what she did in Poland and Crimean has been copied over the centuries.
1: I love that she took a very aggressive approach on this because some people would like to say that women at the helm in a war would be timid or overly practical, um, but she takes this aggressive approach.
2: She does. She, uh, when, it may have been an exaggeration when Kipling wrote, the female of the species is the deadliest by far, but they can be deadly enough to do the job. And in Catherine's case, she set a playbook for Russia that would be copied for the next couple hundred years. In 1939, Joseph Stalin copied from Catherine's playbook when he split Poland up with Germany. In 2014, Vladimir Putin copied from Catherine's playbook when he annexed the Crimea, and then when he went to war to bite off more of Ukraine in 2022. So this rubber band of history sometimes snaps back and it's not as far away as we might think.
1: So tell me, dad, how would you rank Catherine?
2: All right. Among the women who have led their nations in wartime, I give her my top score. I give her a 9.8. First of all, for having a nearly spotless military record, uh, for having a very long time to rule. We're talking 1762 to 1796. Uh, Her positives are that her wars never really went too badly for her country. She was superb at statecraft. She was really good at managing wars at a big level. I think the only negative I'd give her is that she underestimated the revolt under Pugachev, and she didn't predict that Sweden would declare war on her. But remember, she won both wars.
0: She did. Catherine the Great had an extraordinary record, rising from German princess to possibly the greatest ruler in Russia's long history. But more than just a war leader, Catherine set Russia on a course that would lead it back to the Crimean time and time again from the 1800s to the Ukrainian War of the 21st century. It's too bad the men who copied her blueprint couldn't govern with Catherine's next-level skill. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of War Queens. That's our show for today. Listen to every episode of War Queens for more stories of women who brought their nations through the fires of war. If you have any questions for us about War Queens, if you're curious about something you heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at warqueens at diversionaudio.com. Again, that's warqueens at diversionaudio.com. We'll try to answer your questions on a future episode. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at War Queens Podcast. War Queens is a production of Diversion Audio. Your hosts are John Jordan, Emily Jordan, and I'm Natalie Emmanuel. The show is written by John and Emily Jordan based on their book, The War Queens. Our supervising producer and sound designer is Mark Francis. With production assistance from Antonio Enriquez. Editorial direction from Jacob Bronstein and Scott Waxman. Our head of marketing is Erica Farmer. Our theme music is by Tyler Cash. Executive Producers, Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis, and Scott Waxman for Diversion Audio. Diversion Audio.